Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I'm joined by Heidi White. Hi, David. And... This is so exciting. And a special guest who is here because Tim couldn't make it and no one else wanted to do it. And I didn't have a lot of choices. And... Brandon's here. Introduction ever. Brandon's here. Brandon LeBlanc. Uh, Let's start the show now. So we're going to talk about the Odyssey. (laughs) No, Brandon Brandon LeBlanc is here. Brandon LeBlanc. Hello. (laughs) That's all you get. He's only going to say two word answers because he's on a quota. He's only allowed to say 112 total words on the podcast. So he's going to only be using very short sentences throughout this this episode. Yeah, no, Brandon's here. He's joining us. He is filling in for Tim, but also. We are happy to have him, I guess. But there's a merry war betwixt us. By popular demand. <laughs> he says. So Heidi, say hi, to, say hi to Brandon. Welcome to the show. Make him feel better than I'm going to make him feel. Seriously, Brandon, <laughs> welcome to the show. I'm so thrilled you're here. Well-deserved. This is, I mean, you may peak in your life on this day. It's a very <laughs> yeah. big deal to be on close streets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a long time coming, I guess. I'm really nervous. I turned the wrong way out of my street this morning on the way to the office. Everything was bad. It was three <laughs> o'clock and we were coming to record and I was like, are you coming? And he was sitting there Googling something. He just completely forgotten. Just sweating. Had to drag him down here. I debated whether he should be allowed to be actually in the studio, but you know, I did, I did let him. Just sweating like Tim all day long. Really. <laughs> <laughs> well... For those of you who don't know, there is kind of a uh, if you're if you're not on social media, there's kind of a I said a merry war. It's kind of true. We um, joke that Brandon's not allowed to come on the show, but here he is. He is here, and uh, I'm afraid this is going to open the floodgates. But you know, so it goes. It's the beginning of the end. <laughs> but we are here to discuss book 17 and 18 of the Odyssey. We're going to do that in just a second. Before we do, though, I need to let you know about all the ways that you can get in touch. Don't forget that we only have a couple episodes left of The Odyssey here on Close Reads. So be thinking of your questions. If you have them already and you want to uh, get them sent to us, you can email them. You can email us at closereadspodcast at gmail.com. You can find us at closereadspodcasts.com. And you can find us on social media, on Instagram and on Twitter at closereadspods. And of course, you can join the Facebook group on... Uh, well, Facebook. <laughs> the Facebook discussion group. And you can just search... Um, Close Reads podcast discussion group in the search bar there. I assume searching Close Reads will be just as good, but hit that join button and join the conversation if you've already joined but are not participating a lot in that. There's plenty of lively discussion going on there uh, about plenty more than just the book that we're reading at any given time. So you can join that community over there. You can also support the show and get Close Reads swag and bonus content by supporting it through Patreon. Patreon.com slash Close Reads. We have our monthly short story bonus episode. And then also lots of conference talks from Close Reads com- contributors that are uh, up there for our supporters as well. So with that, the business is out of the way. Let's talk about books 17 and 18. So in book 17 and 18, Brandon, here's what we're, we're going to do. I'll throw you right in. Okay. Give us the summary. What happens in book 17 and 18, but you can only do two sentences on each book. Something Tim always fails to do. <laughs> he writes a little essay as he speaks about every book. Uh, in book 17, Telemachus, Eurymaeus, and Odysseus make their way to the ha- back of the house. And Odysseus 
deals with a lot of insults. Um, and then in book uh, 18, they're still at the house and he fights a, another beggar hmm. amongst, amongst insults. That was um, surprisingly... That was really good, actually. That was totally Saint. accurate. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a you couple always follow the rules at the first... When you yeah, begin exactly. to do something, you follow the rules. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. By the end of the show, he's going to be, you know, it's going to be all up to three sentences. But your quota of sentences is, you know, up to six. So you've only got 106 more sentences. That you didn't you actually can... ask my opinion about anything, which is why it's nice and short. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> <clears throat> so I have a couple questions that I wanted to, to, to touch on first. <clears throat> Excuse me. I know there's nothing better than hearing someone cough into a microphone. Um, we get the um, sort of, the interactions with the suitors and the beggars, including Odysseus being sort of in disguise. We get three different beggars, if you include the old swine herd, and then we get all these suitors. And they're very interesting interactions between them. And a lot, and the conflict, essentially, of these two books is bound up in the way the suitors interact with the beggars, including Odysseus, who, of course, they don't know is a suitor. And... Then on the outside of that, we have Athena. And she has this, you know, every now and then we'll get this line about how much she's controlling things. And I was really struck by that because I wanted to think about the question of agency in this book, um, in these books. In book 17, lines 365 or so, there's this bit where it says that Athena stood beside Odysseus and prompted him to go among the suitors begging scraps to find out which of them were bad or good. And there's like this little aside, there's an M dash and then it says, although she had no thought of saving any, any out of the massacre, which was to come. And then in book 18, so there's a bit where it says that she was inciting the suitors to, to be insulting so that Odysseus would be angry so that his, his rage and his anger would grow inside of him. And so I wanted to think about the question of, I guess, justice in a sense, as relates to Athena's interaction here. Because on the one hand, it seems like she's pushing the suitors to be worse and worse. So Odysseus would get more and more angry. And then there's also the, th- the fact that she says here, even though she's trying to figure out which of the suitors are going to be kind to Odysseus, doesn't matter because she's going to kill them all anyway. And for much of the Odyssey up to this point, and I know I'm rambling, I'll be done here in a second. For much of the Odyssey to this point, Athena has been this sort of ally for Odysseus. And in, in a lot of ways, other than to help him get home, she hasn't meddled too much in terms of the inner lives, in terms of the hearts of characters. But here she's very actively sort of pushing the suitors to be a certain way. And she's changing their hearts and making them act in certain ways in a way that se- that will dramatically affect the outcome. And, you know, she's trying to get them to be good, even though she already knows that they're going to be, that she's going to kill them all no matter what. So how do you, how, how do you read her interaction here? It's a kind of a general question, but I'd be curious to know whether you think her goals and her perspectives have, sh- have changed as we get into the latter third of the book. Right. It's a really important question, a big question throughout all the epics, the interaction between gods and men. How much are the humans held responsible for that which the gods have done uh, or incited them, manipulated them, forced them to do? Right, yeah. And that that's, I mean, that's huge. And it's very difficult to separate uh, because the Greek 
gods are just interestingly frail and corrupt and petty and all the same things that we humans are. And so you, we, in reading the epics, you can't uh, evaluate the interaction between gods and men the same way that you can say with a Christian ethic in which you can say this thing felt unfair, but I know that it cannot be because God is good, right? Um, that's not the same with the Greeks. And here we have with Athena, uh, I mean, a clear partisanship. She is on Odysseus's side and mm-hmm. the suitors are going to die because they are suitors, not because they are good or bad, whether they are virtuous or not. They're going to die either way. So in a sense, you're right. It's futile to know whether or not they're good men or bad men. Um, but Odysseus and Athena want to know the same thing as he's disguised as, I noticed this too. You're bringing up something I was paying particular attention to because Odysseus also tests the suitors on his own dressed as the beggar. He goes through and he asks them for bread to see whether or not they will um, give it to him so that he can know whether they're good or bad, knowing I'm just going to kill all these guys if given the chance, no matter what. So in, in a sense, it kind of points to that Greek fatalism in especially us as modern readers who are outside of that no longer believe that, um, that it's, it, it does reveal that kind of, it's good to be virtuous, but either way, the fate's going to, fate's going to get you. Hmm. So Brandon, then is there, and you can jump in anytime, you know, I assume you know that, (laughs) uh, for you, is there a sort of dissonance between what she's saying, which I think we all agree with that, that there is, this sort of classical worldview, for lack of a better term, that's informing the way these gods interact with the people and the story and all that. And it's not the same thing as our sort of modern or even just a contempt, just a Christian worldview. But is there a dissonance still between what their end goal is and what we've been told about Odysseus and Athena and the sort of, and the question of justice, like are, if, if they're just inciting them to act a certain way, is their response to that just then? Yeah, I think because can you turn into the, yeah, the, sorry, the one, the one difference between the two, between Odysseus and Athena is that he does try and warn, um, the, the one who's, what's it? Uh, and feminist. Is that who yeah, it is? And feminist uh-huh. Like you should get out of here before Odysseus gets back basically. Cause you seem wiser and kinder than the rest of these guys but athena is like not having it so she's like nope it's too it's too late so i i wonder if going back to the way she's beseeching zeus in the beginning for justice to be brought to odysseus that these guys have been here three years they had a chance to do the right thing for three years it's too late for them and so the part that struck me was the one that david mentioned where it says that she was trying to stir up more anger in odysseus i think that's Um, 18 yeah, it's an, I think it's an 18. I, I couldn't find the exact spot, but uh, I don't know if it was, I caught it more in this translation for the first time or, or what, but that one jumped out at me. It made me wonder, is she trying to make sure he sees just how much injustice has happened that over three years, all crammed into into one day, like the, the weight of all their behavior? Because she also then starts to, to influence things with Penelope and getting her cleaned up and Penelope doesn't want to get cleaned up. She's trying to bring about all the things she's, she asked Zeus to bring about in the very beginning, that mm. everything be set right, that he have all the treasure he deserves, things like that. Hmm. That's interesting. Oh, here it is. 346 or so. 
Athena wanted pain to sink down deep inside Odysseus. She made the suitors keep taunting him. Eurymachus was jeering to make others the others laugh. So, Brandon, you have um, Lattimore here. Mm-hmm. What does that say for so eight, line 18? Not line 18, book 18, um, around 346. I'd be curious to know how he translates that question of pain. Heidi, do you have another translation there? Not right in front of me. I could get one. Oh, here's the uh, bagels. I'm just curious about what, how other people translate the idea of pain sinking deep down inside Odysseus. Because I think you're probably right, Brandon. I like that point that she's trying to ensure that that the things that she's asking Zeus for in the first place are going to happen. In some ways, I've been struck more than ever before on this read-through about the way this is a story that it, that is about Athena's... In, under the surface, there's this question of Athena's power. Not just her sort of wisdom and cleverness and the way right. she preserves Odysseus, but like what is her stature as a goddess, as an Olympian? Not just the question of, of Odysseus' stature. Uh, but did you find it? Yeah. It's, uh, so, but Athena did not altogether permit the haughty suitors to forego their hard insolence so that still more grief would invade the heart of Odysseus, son of Laertes. More what grief? More grief would invade grief. the heart. Yeah. So 18, I'm going to see what this fagels. Heidi, talk for a second while I just make sure that I have the right line here. Right. Well, I think what is striking me as you're talking about that, because that's that's within the story for sure. I mean, directly, Homer tells us this is what Athena is doing and this is why she's doing it. But the same thing in some ways could be said of Homer as a craftsman, right? If you're going to tell a good story uh, and, and you're going to have... You know, we all know how it ends. Actually, Homer says it here in the book, and so does Athena. The will of Athena is that the suitors are all going to die. There's going to come a point in which Odysseus reveals himself as uh, the king when he jumps on the table and he just slays them all. They all die in a bloodbath, and uh, and that's that's coming. And so a craftsman will properly bring his hero, his protagonist, as low as he can go so then he can glorify and exalt that moment of great redemption. And in some ways, it's it's pretty cool. Athena has the same role in the story as Homer the poet does to make that redemption shine, to make it, you know, we've been waiting a really long time for it. Uh, and Odysseus keeps going through suffering after suffering after suffering. Heidi, can I, can I ask you a question? I think I've heard you talk in the past about when discussing um, plays, uh, and, I, and now I can't remember if it was Shakespearean plays or, or the ancients, um, but in the tragedy, once the protagonist makes the, 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 the choice that leads to everything, um, it's, it's set in motion and it, it can't be undone. Like there's, there's this unraveling that has to then happen. Mm-hmm. And, in a sense, if you view any of these suitors as a protagonist of his own story, like they set this in motion this in the same way. Is that, I mean, does that kind of what you're talking about? Like it has to now play out. They should never have been here doing what they're doing. Right. And they have, as you pointed out rightly, they have had time to leave. And in fact, there's a scene in the beginning in the Telemachy, and I do not remember right now if it's amphibious. <laughs> that is a hard one to say. Yeah. Uh, amphibious. Yeah, right. Um, whether it's that same suit uh, who had a, a, a virtuous father, a good father, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. he's warned by Telemachus to go. What if you, like, just leave now? And he, he stayed. I, I looked it up. He is the one who who says, 
don't kill him. Like when they all are plotting to kill him, he's like, oh, we don't really need to kill him. Um, right. He's the only one that speaks that. Um, I do find so it interesting that, yeah. well, that in this scene, we also have Telemachus starting to speak up, right? And they're silenced mm-hmm. a little bit. So maybe there's this hint of, oh, maybe we've we waited too long and Telemachus is ready to take over and we should get out of here while we can. And Athena is trying to make sure they don't get away with it, get away with that not, without receiving their just punishment, basically. Right. Yes. She keeps them there for out of anger and hatred of the beggar out of, for their, the sake of their feast. And she presents Penelope to them uh, and to inflame their desire so that they will stay. So it is, uh, she does play this very like craftsman, like almost like she's tweaking everything just to make right. it perfect, like set up the scene perfectly with all the little details. Hmm. Did Fagel, you find it, David? Yeah, Fagel says that she meant to make the anguish cut still deeper into the core of Laertes' son Odysseus. Hmm. Athena had no mind to let the brazen suitors hold back now from their heart-rending insults. So, so she's kind of inciting them to make sure that Odysseus is angry. Mm-hmm. Why was the anger? I mean, why does she have to do that though? I guess is my question. Like, was his anger not enough or was she worried that he would be, or, I mean, or was the anger that he had already from seeing it there not enough or was she worried that he would be merciful? Oh, that's a good question. And in this particular instance, the, the lines that you just read, that does not tell us. Um, there are a couple other places that you quoted when it said, she does this so that Odysseus will do blah, blah, blah. She, she makes Penelope more beautiful so that she could elevate her in the sight of her husband and her son. So, But in this particular case, the lines you just read, it's just a, that we're not told exactly why Athena wanted pain to sink down deep inside Odysseus. Um, we can maybe infer from the context of some of her other uh, interventions that it's because she wants to make that exactly what you just said. She's she is moving things towards their inevitable end. She has a fate. Uh, not only for the suitors as a whole, but in some sense for each and every one of them. With Amphinomus, I, I made it that time. It says that she um, that she she had fated for him to die at Telem- at the end of Telemachus's spear. So, in some sense, we she knows exactly how all of them individually are going to die already. Hmm. So we're like in the weeds here. This is that we're not in the forest above. Odysseus is going to come home we're, and slay the suitors and restore the kingdom. We're in like that, the, the nuts and bolts of how that's going to happen. She needs him to be angry and sad so that he will execute the full justice that is due to these men, these suitors who've been plundering the kingdom. It, it seems like there is this sense in Odysseus that he is... Uh, how to put it? He is taking stock of the situation and trying to decide exactly how to respond. The microcosm of that is is um, when he's fighting Iris. Yeah, and there's that line that says Odysseus, who had endured so many insults, wondered if he should hit him hard enough to kill him, or give him just a tap to knock him down. It's in uh, early in eighteen, and uh, mm-hmm. I thought it'd be interesting to have a discussion about what he should have done there. 
you know, as this character who comes home, I mean, that'd be a great essay to have a student students write about. Yeah, because there's because it brings up questions of justice and it gives up brings up questions of um of well, justice is the big one, but mercy. You know, the relationship mm-hmm. between mercy and justice. Because in the end, he sides. He decides. He leans to be tap that breaks his jaw (laughs) he breaks his jaw and then sends him outside and little does iris know that he saved him that he could have just you know struck him down immediately so this this question seems to be has come right before athena starts pouring Mm. she incites the the um so this that that scene with iris happens right before she incites the suitors to make him more Mm. angry and it makes me wonder if you know does she see that and say, oh, Odysseus's weakness is his mercy. Right. What do you think, Brandon? Well, I think that question about Iris is interesting because there's a sense where he doesn't have the same kind of culpability as the suitors. Um, he, he's not a head of a household. Like, you know, uh, mm-hmm. peasants don't have the same responsibilities in, as a lord, right? And so duties they, aren't the same. Right. And so he, in some ways, he's just acting out what the people who feed him tell him to do, you know? Mm-hmm. And so Odysseus, Although he's frustrated, chooses to to show him some mercy. But I always laugh. I have to say, I've always loved those lines, and I've always laughed because I think of like old television shows where someone's like, "There's going to be two hits in this fight: me hitting you, and you hitting the ground." <laughs> like that's <laughs> like Odysseus knows. Like this is, I, I'm hitting him once, and this is over. Either he's yeah, dead or he's not. Goes out. back to the western, right? Right. It's yeah. Classic like, um, John Wayne fight scene. Right? <laughs> but I do think there's a that's a possibility that I think is like okay he's looking to show some mercy if, if mercy should be shown. And I wonder if because he's been absent, because he hasn't seen all the injustice that's happened or felt it um, from the suitors, he's felt the injustice of his trials coming home that without completely giving out the justice to the suitors, uh, Penelope and Telemachus wouldn't, wouldn't have the resolution of, of, um, justice for their for for their what's been done to them um so in order to restore his his wife and his and his son in order to the land maybe he has to give out the kind of justice that athena is going to make him do and she wants to make sure he does it i thought it interesting later when athena said i mean penelope says if he comes home and takes care of everything i'll be i'll be restored even in beauty um yeah i'll talk about that a bit yeah but so there's a sense maybe where he might be able to get justice for himself just by getting these guys out of here taking his house back but he might not be getting justice for his his wife and child without something more extreme Hmm. odysseus tells us why he doesn't kill iris or excuse me homer tells us why odysseus doesn't kill iris uh and it has nothing to do with mercy, although it is a merciful act. Uh, in line 95, 95-ish, mid-90s, um, he says, a light touch would be best, he thought, in case the suitors cottoned on. In some ways, it's a pragmatic decision. I can't kill this guy with one blow because then they might guess that I'm either a god in disguise or that I'm Odysseus in disguise. It might reveal... Uh, my true self, I have to continue to keep my power restrained so that I can keep my identity in, which means I just have to bear more and more insults. Um, So he's 
in some sense, it does show, although it is an act of mercy, it's also a strategic act, the act of Odysseus, the great tactician. It isn't time yet. I have to endure and suffer for a longer amount of time. Um, and, and I think that these two books are, I mean, I know that they kind of fell together in the reading plan that we read them together, but thematically they belong together. You should read these two books together because they are the valley of the shadow for Odysseus while he is at home. He's powerless. He's in disguise. He has to restrain himself. He sees his wife before him in the full glory of her beauty, uh, and he cannot touch her or speak to her. Uh, The suitors who are... uh, are desiring her and giving her gifts, which elevates her in their eyes, but also is suffering for him. And then in this case, he's being literally beat up by these people that he, that the little interlude or this little anecdote with Iris tells us he could take any of them out. Like it's important thematically for us to know he's physically stronger than everybody here. Mm. So that even in disguise as a beggar, one blow takes each man out. So collectively, they're stronger than him, which is why he's in disguise. But individually, one-on-one, he could take them. And that, and he knows all that and has to hold himself down to restrain himself. And that is super important. So I like that we read these books together uh, over this week because the readers need to know, like, this is the, the bottom of the barrel for Odysseus. Yeah, what and that restraint comes up over and over again mm-hmm. when he keep when he when he keeps just lowering his head and think and devising ways to um for revenge, for lack of yep. a better word. Which there's also one point, and I can't remember exactly where in these two books, where almost the exact same language is used for what Telemachus decides to do. Mm-hmm. When there's a moment where he, he he's pained by seeing what's happened to his father. Too. Yep. And it goes back to we all discussing at the beginning of he's he's been fatherless right and so he's done some things that have given him some fatherly wisdom from menelaus and from nestor and um but he watches his father be patient right here and then he has the kind of the the discipline to be patient himself with his father's example which i thought was really kind of talking all in the midst of talking about his beard is now growing in and it's time for her to pick a husband and all that kind of stuff there's this actual sense of him maturing from watching his father. Right. Yes. And this part's just so slow. The pace of this is very slow and painstaking. We have Athena tweaking the details and um, there's, there's just this holding of the breath, like this sense of um, building pressure here. Mm-hmm. I, I will say though, that I was, I enjoyed, um, the pace of her translation during this section because where it doesn't feel as slow to me as some some other translations. Now I don't know if that was because she got to use a great word like flabbergasted. <laughs> I mean, there's the bit where he you know takes off his rags and he's got his massive thighs and these mighty shoulders and enormous chest and the sturdy arms and you get this description and they're all just kind of standing there jaw jaw you know jaw dropped <laughs> and shocked that this guy is uh, as strong as he is. And then she's still power, gives him a little boost, power boost. Um, she stood near him and increased his strength to suit the shepherd of the people and all the suitors were flabbergasted. And so this is right before the fight. And so, you know, I, that's why I wonder if it really was necessary for him to 
if that, you know, he, 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 um, he's worried that, you know, he's going to reveal himself by if he hits the guy too hard. But then if he's really worried about that, then why do you throw his rags off? <laughs> I mean, he's, right. you know, he it just revealed just that he is because the one flaw in this reading to me is like, once he does that and everybody's already kind of on edge and being told that Odysseus is going to come home. And then this random guy, stranger who's a, uh, who's dressed in rags, all of a sudden throws his clothes off and he's like, looks like a WWE wrestler. That's a telltale <laughs> sign that something's a little off in the moment, right? So the suitors should have been, you know, should have started banding together a little bit. Right. Because <laughs> like all... they'd been drinking too much. They just couldn't. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, because there's a reference from the goat herder and one of the suitors that, why don't you work, right? Which I've always marked and thought, this is interesting that he's saying, you could be working instead of being a beggar, um, which is something we say. Yeah, you're you're strong enough to hold well, a job. Well, except for the and with the goat herders, like if you came and worked for me, you'd get some muscle in those scrawny legs, which he can't see at the time. He he just assumes he has oh, scrawny yeah. beggar's legs. And so you're right. Like he once he throws them off, the the, the goat herd should have been like mm, something's not right here. But the other guy is it's at least in in Wilson's translation, she calls him weak, even though he's fat. Um, mm-hmm. And I couldn't remember exactly how Vladimir said it, but anyway, that there's I've marked that for other reasons. There's some interesting stuff in here when it comes to the the belly and the chest and the head. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he's he's got a big belly, but he's weak because he hasn't worked. Well, an Antinous name is lots of fun. Antinous's name. So I don't know Greek well enough, but Matt Bianco pointed this out to me when we were reading this last year that. It's possible when you his name the anti noose so like like the noose and the thumos and the epithumos and hmm. I know your dad feels like that uh, that Homer is the first Greek philosopher and so it's interesting to ponder whether 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 Plato and Socrates borrow from kind of what's displayed here because he's the he's the unwise right he's anti noose he's unwise hmm. so but you, and there's lots of references to st- being people being led by the stomach, especially the beggars. Like they do stupid things because their stomach is so hungry. Mm. Being so being led by the wrong, right. By the wrong, the wrong things. Iros has a fat stomach and he's led by it, but his chest is weak. He's actually weak physically. Mm. So mm. because he's allowed the wrong things to, right. To drive him. It's interesting early in book 18 that you're talking about Antinous or Antinous, <laughs> um, <laughs> that, uh, Telemachus says, Guest, he's talking to uh, Odysseus. He says, Guest, if your brave spirit urges you to fight against this challenger, you need not worry about the others. Anyone who strikes you will face a multitude. I am your host. Eurymachus and this Antinous are sensible and they agree with me. And it's interesting that Telemachus is his, his own cleverness is starting to show because in, there's little places here and there where he's sort of almost like buttering up some of the suitors or he is saying clever things to make them think he's not as strong as he is, or he, he'll, then he'll say little things here and there to incite them. And so he's starting to play the situation in the way that Odysseus might have. So it's, it almost, I almost wonder if after he meets Odysseus, he goes off to go find news, I guess about, you know, he goes to Helen and Menelaus and so then, um, men, mentor. Who, who does he go? Anyway, whatever. Um, he goes to do that. Master. And, 
Nestor, that's right, of course. Um, he goes to get this news. He finds out a little bit of news and that gives him a sort of strength, you know, sort of uh, fortitude, courage. And then he comes back and he meets Odysseus. And after he meets Odysseus, it seems like his own attempts at being clever. He's not just brave, but he begins to... It's like, it's like Odysseus's cleverness and st- strategic skills begin to rub off on him a little bit. Because he starts kind of playing with people's own pride. He says playing to their pride. And it seems as if he's sort of like buttering them up and making them think, you know, and sometimes he acts like he's not very smart. And then sometimes he says something really clever and they're like, wow, he's actually smarter than we thought. And so he's keeping them kind of on edge by that. And even here, it seems like he's doing that when he says he calls Antinua sensible, right? Which is clearly not true. He's a, Antinua is a blowhard. <laughs> yeah. Do you right. read that? Do you read that when he, when he says, well, depending on which one you're looking at in Wilson's, it says shush, which I'm not crazy about, but anyway, uh, Antinous does not speak, does not deserve an answer. He is always picking a fight. And is that like an aside you think to Eumaeus? And then he turns and speaks to and praises Antinous out loud. Uh, it's like three ninety five ish in, uh, in book 17. Oh, book 17. Yeah. So Eumaeus was responding to Antinous and, uh, and then Telemachus kind of says, be quiet, or in, the, in Latin, more silence. Yeah, yeah Latin through, yeah. Um, He's always picking a fight and goading on others. Yeah, I didn't, I don't think I caught in the They said something nice to him. Right, yeah, I didn't, I couldn't ever tell, or maybe I was not, never sure whether he says all of that out loud and he's act, and he's kind of being sarcastic toward Antonus, or you're saying, but you're saying you think he's being, he's kind of playing him a little bit after telling Eumaeus, hey, don't worry about it, kind of thing. I think that's how I read it. Heidi, what do you think? Um, I think you could read those lines either way, but I think the point that you're making, David, stands really well, which is Telemachus becomes a man from the minute he encounters, from, from within the, from the time, the beginning of the Odyssey and the Telemachy, when he encounters his father's friends and feels himself to be part of a community of heroes who loved his father and, and, and therefore love him. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that then brings him to the point in which he's participating with his father in the salvation of their land and their family. And everything he does, I love Brandon that you pointed out how much Telemachus imitates his father uh, in, in separate senses. Like it's really, or separate instances. Um, on page 402 at the bottom, uh, line 487 or so, Antinous ignored the suitor's words. The blow increased the pain inside Telemachus's heart, but he let fall no tears. He calmly shook his head and thought about revenge. That's exactly what Odysseus had done just a few pages before, almost the same phrasing. Uh, he he let the suitor he he let Antinous throw the stool at him and he just took it and it bounced off his strong body and it didn't even move him because he's so strong and he stood there and thought about revenge. Telemachus does that here. So there's this there's this sense that not but this, these are internal thoughts, right? So it there's this sense that Telemachus is being formed by the presence of his father on the inside as well as in his actions. And that process is, as David pointed out, started way back in the Telemachy. Yeah, this is one of those instances where I think 
the language actually is exactly the same and it gets lost a little mm -hmm. bit in Wilson's translation. Um, at least, at least yeah. when I'm looking at Lattimore, it's the exact same words. It's, but he shook his head in silence, deeply devising evils, line 465, talking about um, Odysseus. And then the very next page, like you're take, or, you know, less than 100 lines down, Telemachus, but he shook his head in silence, deeply devising evils. Uh, and that wording is used for Odysseus several times. So I, this might be one of those instances where she, um, you know, she, she talks about in the introduction. She, she purposely chose not to continue using the repeated phrases often, um, mm -hmm. particularly for descriptions of the, of the different characters, but, um, send things a little like that. What you're saying gets a little lost. Yeah. With those transcription choices. Yeah. I think there's an argument for doing that in certain cases. Um, if you're trying to give a fuller picture of a character, I think, it you lose something in cases like this. Um, I also think you lose something in when she refers to the dawn because it doesn't come across the same way. But um, that's the one that shook me the hardest when I first saw even the beginning of the chapter of Brook Seventeen. That description of dawn doesn't paint the picture With the same the flower way. Flower fingers. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. not for me. I'm not a fan of it. But we've already talked about that on a yeah. couple other podcasts, but yeah, this, yeah. in this particular case, I really wished that she had kept the wording the same because that I think really does go to the heart of what's happening with Telemachus in these two books. Right. Right. I think Just it's to be unfortunate. Clear, it's not, she does not say flower. flower fingers. That's a bit lot different than hands with appeared with hands of flowers. <laughs> right. But she does. Hands <laughs> of flowers is a lot I more. I remember it being vague. flower fingers. Well, I looked it up. She does it different. She does it different every single time. And that's in the, she actually listed in the, in, in the introduction or um, she doesn't listen in the introduction. Someone else wrote an article about hers, listed all of them for, for Dawn in particular. And there are a lot of variations on, it's more leaning toward the imagery of a flower, which I think is not the actual imagery of the Greek. Well, Fagel says when young Dawn with her rose red fingers shown. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think the, um, the image of giving the color of something related to roses, whether that's rose red or rosy pink or whatever it might be. And the image of fingers creates a distinct image of sun rising or on the dark horizon um, in a way that's different than say one of those times she says the flower dawn blossomed the words are like the flower. Um, and so it, it, it paints a picture in a way that's different than a lot of the choices she makes do. I think, I think it. I, I think where it works in her translation is the persona. Like it tends to personify, yeah, Dawn in a way that, in some ways, gives it a sense of agency. Like when you personify it by giving it hands, mm -hmm. it, it gives it a sense of action. Like it's playing a role in some ways. Um, Faye, what did I say? Fagel's is her rose red fingers rose shown once more. In the end, I mean, it's possible that Homer was doing nothing but marking time. <laughs> Entirely possible. Go ahead, Heidi. I have nothing to say about this. <laughs> I've already said all the things. <laughs> well, okay. We need to, we need to um, talk about Penelope before we go. Mm -hmm. Because there's all this stuff, Brandon, you mentioned this earlier, I think about how Odysseus, once Odysseus left, she lost her beauty, essentially. She and at least she lost her own sense of her own beauty, which I think might be. Those are more two different things, and point. I think really important. Yes. Do you think so? Do you? How do you read that then? Do you, which of what do you think that that is 
that it's more that she lost her own sense of beauty or that she believes that that Homer is saying that she actually is less beautiful once he leaves. I mean, either way, those are a little bit anti-feminist <laughs> that they'd be so tied to Odysseus. But I'm curious how you how you read that. And I guess particularly, I'm, I'm, I wonder how you read it as, as a woman and as a wife. Sure. Yeah, I think it's... We do see that Penel- in, in the Telemachy, Penelope is presented as beautiful. And so we know that she is objectively a beautiful, desirable woman uh, in Although her own Although we are right. told not like Helen. <laughs> right. She Well, and that's important too, because that's, you know, we talked about in an earlier podcast how Odysseus chose Penelope for her wisdom. Uh, and, uh, and even though she was quiet... Um, and didn't put herself forward when he had the opportunity to choose between Penelope and Helen. And, you know, that's not in the Odyssey. That's another myth. But it is, that is in the mythological record that Odysseus had the opportunity to marry Helen, saw that she was not as wise as her cousin Penelope and married Penelope instead. Um, And so, and that Penelope was beautiful and desirable, but of course not Helen. You know, Helen is Helen. Um, But... There's something about Penelope's faithfulness, the fact that she, in some sense, that that I think it does glorify her more about that she doesn't care about her beauty without the presence of her husband because beauty is something that um, she, she doesn't see a purpose for it without her man there. Like, and she, it doesn't give her a power that she wants to have. She wants her beauty to be for the eyes and the joy of Odysseus. And so without him there, it doesn't serve a purpose in her life. And um, and she's sad. She's weeping all the time. And it that talks about how she cries every day and it, that, that, that that does ravage, in a sense, her face because of that. Um, and so I think that that speaks to her grief and also to her faithfulness to her husband. But then Athena wants to honor her. And so he, she kind of brings that beauty to bloom um, once again as a gift to Odysseus. Uh, which to your point about feminism, I kind of think, let's just take the book on its own terms because it's actually quite a beautiful um, picture of a wife's faithfulness um, and how much that means to her husband to see her in all of her beauty for the first time in 20 years. Yeah. I think Homer's um, more pro-female than he's giving credit for, but that's a of course he is. for another time. Of course he I, is. I think it's interesting that in both the translations I have in front of me, um, it says that she's made taller by... Athena, mm-hmm. and then in one version, thicker, which I thought was a funny word choice by Lattimore, um, and another one, shapelier, um, uh, which to me, it seems like it's trying to convey, um, like you're talking about some of that uh, youthful beauty is given back to her for, for the benefit of the eyes of the suitors, who would be uh, more prone to care mostly about that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Young, foolish men. Um, but it is like a like just that kind of fresh-faced kind of idea, right? Of a younger, uh, you know, you'd hear in Austin say the balloon is off or something like that later. But the woman is still beautiful. Like you can, but you know that what you, 
anyway, I'm digging myself into a bad hole here. Um, <laughs> but uh, but for Odysseus, like he would still remember the wife of his youth, right? That you age well together if you if you truly are in love with someone, husband and wife. But he, she kind of gives her some of that youthful glow back, essentially. But what I find interesting is that we find out later that they, they both are kind of restored some of their youthful looks and strength um, in the end as kind of their just reward for, for being long-suffering and patient and, and faithful, which I think is pretty awesome right. too. But, but for each other, just for, just for each other, not for, for vanity or for, the, or for the sake of the world, but for the two of them to be able to basically enjoy the, like have the time back they lost essentially. And we have, we talked some last episode. Oh, my book just closed. <laughs> I don't know. I lost a line. I, can, I remember what I was going to say, but we have a problem with the lines here, I think. But we talked about sleep a lot last episode. Mm-hmm. Right. And in the moment when Athena makes her, Athena makes her more beautiful, he makes her taller and so forth, her skin more white than I, more white than ivory. Then it says, um, she goes to sleep and, or she's been asleep. And then when she wakes up, despite my bitter grief, a peaceful sleep enveloped me. And so that you know, harkens back to the last couple episodes where, where sleep becomes this big question for Odysseus. You know, it, whether he, whether it's a, uh, is he going to go to sleep and it's going to cost him or is it going to be the kind of sleep that rejuvenates him? And here in the last book on the, when 16 begins, I think he sleeps for real, right? Like he has a deep sleep that, that, gives him strength and prepares him for the final battle. And here she's Penelope falls kind of in uh, Athena gives Penelope the gift of sleep in a similar way that she wakes up from that sleep more prepared to, to do battle, so to speak, much like Odysseus was in in 16. I think it's 16 when he wakes up on the beach. Heidi, go ahead. Right. Oh, I think that you're right. And whenever Penelope sleeps, um, something happens within her, like within the story. Uh, I've been, what you said just reminded me of that. And I'm trying to think back. So um, Athena will give her dreams while she's sleeping or encourage her while she's sleeping. And when she wakes refreshed, the, the Odyssey points out over and over again that her beauty is restored in her sleep, which you talked about the marking of time. And... I think there's lots of reasons for those repeated patterns, you know, that the oral tradition, it's easier for the bards to memorize if they're repeating than to memorize new phrases all the time. Uh, and, I, and I think that's true uh, for sure. That's, that's a, a, a reason having to do with form and structure of the work itself. But meaning-wise, that idea of sleep being restorative to the purpose of so that you can do the next thing, right? Like, so you can do the next thing that the gods are asking you to do in order to restore the kingdom for Penelope. Uh, when she sleeps, she's, she's encouraged. Like she goes to sleep crying and she wakes up with her beauty restored and her mind settled and at peace and able to be wise and to wait again the next day, do that hard, hard work of waiting. Not just wise, but clever, right? That's yes. it's after that, that she then tricks all the suitors into <laughs> bringing gifts around. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's true. And Odysseus is like, 
Yeah, this is why I married her. I she doesn't care well. that she was, that Athena made her beautiful. He just liked that she was clever. Well, it's interesting because in 18 there, it says she poured sweet sleep into Penelope, onto Penelope, who lay down on her couch. Her joints relaxed. She slept. Athena gave her gifts of godlike power. And that calls to mind a lot of the references throughout the book of Odysseus being godlike. There's even that bit in 17 where, they, where the suitors say, Antinous actually says, you ought not to have hit that old beggar. If he turns out to be a god from heaven, it will end badly. And so there's this um, there's this uh, connection between Odysseus and him being godlike. There's this constant sort of connection being made. Um, and this question of whether Odysseus... Other people seem to question whether Odysseus is actually a god in disguise. And then Athena is doing things to make him seem more godlike. And then here, she prepares Penelope by making her seem godlike. And so she's she's all doing all these different things that are sort of thematically connecting Penelope and Odysseus more and more and more before they've ever even met, before they've ever even like made contact with direct contact with one another. I think that's really really uh, well done by Homer or whoever, you know, whoever came up with that little bit over the years. <laughs> um, but that the fact that Penelope becomes godlike or references her as godlike, I think is a I think it's a big moment. Because I think it it changes the stakes, it changes her power, it makes it tells us the degree sh- to which her role is going to be meaningful in these final books. Go ahead, Heidi. Right. Well, and there's this sense with Penelope of like she's about to come into her own. Right. We're about to see what she's capable of, which we certainly do in the next couple of books. Um, she, even her waiting, is active, not passive, and she is. She's working hard to wait. And I think of in the introduction to this, I'm wondering that word thick that you said is in Lattimore, Brandon, mm-hmm. um, that in Wilson's introduction, do you guys know what I'm about to say about the word thick? No. Um, in the next section, when Penelope comes up with the, when they come up with the ruse, we're about to get there. Sorry, this is a little bit, a little bit of a spoiler, but I won't tell you how it ends. Of the um, of the bow of of Odysseus's bow, and it describes uh, Homer describes Penelope uh, taking the bow in her thick hand. So, and and it's always Wilson says that word always gives translators problems because it's not very feminine or beautiful to say that she. Why does she have a thick hand? Like that's, but that's the literal translation. And it turns out that in uh, ancient Greek, that word thick is only ever used for a woman when spoken of Penelope. It is always used of warriors arming and gearing themselves for battle. It's used over and over again in the Iliad. Their thick hands grasped their spear or put on their armor or their shield or through their javelin or whatever. But it's never used of women, only in the Odyssey and only when she picks up Odysseus's bow. Hmm. So there's this sense of, of Penelope being armed with beauty here uh, to participate with, even though they're still separated, but to participate with Odysseus and Telemachus for the restoration of their land from the suitors. Like she takes an active role. And until now that role has been waiting. Uh, but after the conversation she has in the next book, in book 19, now she's all in, but she still doesn't, you know, the question of course then, which we're going to talk about forever next week, I'm sure, is does Penelope know that that's, that the beggar is Odysseus? And 
people have lots of theories about that. But either way, that word thick, I'm wondering if that's used here again about her beauty. Yeah. It's interesting too that it's translated by Wilson as shapely. Shapely. Um, she translates the, the she translates it muscular when talking about her hand picking up the bow because she says I can't use thick that just is weird unless you know the history right. of the word so I have to come up with some other way and I don't know if it's if that's the same word here so if listeners are listening to it and you know please comment um, but so I'm I'm not necessarily taking a definitive stand but I am saying Penelope is a like she's a hero here well there's a sense too I think we talk about the armor and the, the other usage of it um, and there's use earlier when it talks about um, Patronicus picking up a spear where she, like it, it it's well fit to his hand like it it's the right fit right, mm-hmm, right. It, the, the sword fits his hand well so in that sense like she is she fits that same sense of shapeless is it's a right fit for what's about to happen mm-hmm. um, both in, in in her beauty and being made more shapely or more thick or whatever you want to call it and and then her hand is right to the bow because mm-hmm. of she, she's making the right use of it like a warrior would. Um, so I wonder if there's a sense of that, like there's this kind of, it's a good, it's a well fit to the person. Um, you know, the right fit of the armor that, that can make a huge difference right in a battle when you're about to fight for what it's yes. worth. F- Fagel says fuller in form. Okay. Hmm. Where she, So she says shapelier. Mm-hmm. Fagel says fuller in form. And then he, Latimer Latimer says thick. thick. <laughs> So he's just using the literal. Yeah. But I, I think all of this, David, to your point about um, she's being described as some of the same language as Odysseus has been to this point, both in yes. the godlike stuff and in the cleverness um, and they're being it together. I think if memory serves, you, you also start seeing Odysseus being described in terms that have up to this point mostly been about Penelope. Things like, this is where you start getting more references to him being faithful and steadfast and and patient toward mm-hmm. this end more than in the beginning where you got a lot of clevers and a lot of godlike um which bothers some people for other reasons but i think it, <laughs> it serves that argument that you're talking about that they are being knit together by the language of homer even before their union is complete that their that their purposes are are in, in unison it's interesting that it seems to be seems to be going both ways too Let's see if i can explain what i mean on the one hand, Penelope, to, to what you guys are saying, she's being described in terms of, you know, if you take that, almost like arming for battle terms, right? Like you mentioned the bow. So, or I don't remember which of you mentioned it. No, Heidi did. Okay. Brandon says Heidi did. So, um, like in the sense that she's a warrior who is arming for battle. She's strong. She's brave. She's going to be ready for the fight. Um, but then it also seems to be, we seem to be getting increasingly references to Odysseus as, you know, his, his being good looking. Mm-hmm. We're getting that in a way that we weren't before too. And in some ways it seems to be revealing more and more that they're a good match for each other or something like that. You know, that he is, mm-hmm. he's handsome, he's strong. I mean, he's literally not wearing hardly any clothes. <laughs> so we get these moments where they, in the same book, they are, I think it makes them both these people who are already handsome and beautiful. She makes them more handsome and beautiful. And then basically they're both presented to the readers and to the community in like, their physical splendor, right? So he's he has no clothes but a few rags on, and he's sitting there bare chested, bare legged, 
in the med- like the manifestation of his physical prowess, right? And then mm-hmm. she's standing up there in this extremely beautiful form that nobody can take their eyes off of them. It, and this happens in the same book. And so this like they're being linked together by the language, by their almost like the presentation of themselves physically to the whole group. So everyone can kind of stare at them. So it kind of reveals as I think for readers, it brings them together in a way that's like, yeah, these people belong together. Mm-hmm. And increasingly it re- reveals them as being like on the same side as if you have two soldiers who, you know, are, are arming for battle in the same, and then they're going to go fight together. I think, I think that's really interesting. Heidi, you look like you want to say something. I'm, I wondered, I meant, I actually meant to ask the Scott White this, but I ran out of time. <laughs> this, and so... As opposed I to the other one. I, the other I Scott White it, that you know. Right. I'm, I'd be curious. You're, you two husbands, when Odysseus sees her for the first time after 20 years, she's surrounded by a court of admirers giving her gifts to try to woo her. Now, Athena does this in order to inflame their desire for their doom. And he, she also wants to present Penelope in the best possible light to Odysseus. So I wonder about that. And I was reading it yesterday and I'm like, tomorrow when we're having our coffee on the porch, I'm going to ask Scott how this would feel to him. Like if he hadn't seen me for 20 years and the first time he sees me, I'm surrounded by a court of admirers trying to woo me. <laughs> while looking extremely beautiful. Like, would that be the best possible way to see me for the first time after 20 years? Like, how would that feel to a husband? I mean, in a sense, I think, well, I mean, that's kind of cool. And then I think, oh, bummer. So I don't know. Like, <laughs> what? what is... I don't know if there's something cultural there. I don't, I don't know. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> so it says in Emily Wilson, it says flying 282, Odysseus, who had endured so much, was happy was she happy. was secretly procuring presents and charming them with pretty words while her mind moved elsewhere. So that's got to be it, right? Her mind so, is, he knows her mind is elsewhere. Yeah. His, her, her mind is on him, I think, is the assumption there. And so right. that's the thing that is. He he's admiring that she's clever and wise because that's the thing that he always yeah. that's why he chose her over the most beautiful woman in the world in the first place. So the thing that was always most appealing to him is the thing that she is revealing to him in the moment he sees her for the first time. I think that the beauty, as far as Odysseus goes, is essentially immaterial. The beauty is geared towards the suitors to bring them to their doom. And it's her cleverness, which Athena has does nothing to increase, is what makes Odysseus, you know. Right, because she wasn't even here. She wasn't even going to wash herself up before she went down there, like wash her face. And Athena's like, no, if you're gorgeous, then these guys will be stupid and give you a bunch of free stuff because you're clever. And that's what, like, I think for Odysseus, because he's a wise man, because he chooses what is better, unlike Paris, he he's like, man, these knuckleheads are so stupid. This is amazing. And like, like I, I think he feels like there's no threat that she's ever, she would ever choose one of these idiots over me. And I think, I think Athena's putting on display that, that none of these guys are a worthy match for, for, um, yeah, they're for, taken in by the wrong things. Yeah, they're you, too easy to trick. Like, yeah, even if Odysseus had died on the journeys, none of these guys are a worthy match for Penelope. Like they're not her equal. Um, and now everybody can see it. Like it's he, she's making it 
plain as day. So uh, Fagels translates it. Staunch Odysseus glowed with joy to hear all this. His wife's trickery luring gifts from her suitors now, enchanting their hearts with suave, seductive words, but all the while with something else in mind. The, mm. the question of... He, he turns to this sort of uh, theme of seductiveness, suggesting that Penelope's being actively seductive here. And that's not something that Emily Wilson... She talks about the pretty words, but she seems to be making an active choice not to suggest that Penelope is being seductive, so to speak. I find mm. that interesting. Fagels, yeah. Fagels leans into that and Emily Wilson leans away from that. I, I assume because Wilson wants to emphasize her cleverness and perhaps that it was Athena's, you know, the beauty was something that was, you know, Athena's emphasis to win the suitors. But then that also calls to mind all the other, you know, it calls to mind the, the, um, Nausicaa, it calls to mind the sirens, it calls to mind Circe, and it calls to mind Calypso. These seductive women who have been after him for all this time, trying to seduce him and keep him around. I mean, Nausicaa, not so much. I don't want to throw Nausicaa under the bus there. <laughs> but, um, but She's the, more like offered to him by her father. Right, I mean, right. And, point is valid that she is... like There are people, in, herself included, that want her to marry Odysseus. Right, and they've and they have been this like thing that's meant to. At every turn, there's some seductive woman or beautiful woman who is meant to draw him away from his end goal, right. and so Fagel seems to be leaning into that here, which I actually don't mind. It just depends on how you want what you want to emphasize. Brandon, go ahead. Yeah, and I um, I think most of those women or goddesses that you're talking about are seductresses, although maybe not Circe quite as much as like Calypso, but um, but Nausicaa to me, the big difference with her is that. She, to me anyway, she always presented as she's kind of a young version of Penelope, right? Mm-hmm. She, she does good by him. She tries to help him. She gives him wise advice. In, in many ways, she's a, she's a picture of, of a young Penelope. And that's why he, he says something along the lines of, you know, were I a single free man, then I, you know, this would be a great offer, right? Because she would, she would make a good wife for someone like Odysseus, who cares about the right things. Yeah, you got to send her off for Telemachus later. Right, yeah, exactly, right? Like, this is a great <laughs> idea. You can marry my son. Um, they did mail-order brides back then. It that's been right. I assume so, that's what they called them. Arranged marriages between kingdoms. <laughs> yeah. But, so, that's why she... That's why he... He does tell her he's going to honor her for all the things she did for him for the rest of his life, but in a way that's as far as he can go without breaching propriety because he loves his wife basically. And so, and we could, people might argue about that line, but that's, I think within the context of the story, she's presented more like Penelope. And, and in this scene, Penelope probably looks like she did 20 years ago, basically when, when she was Nausicaa's age. Right. And so, but Odysseus was not swayed by the fact that she was younger and beautiful. That's his kind of most, that's his toughest test, right? She's more than just a seductress. She actually is a pretty good option, but, but these suitors who are foolish would totally be swayed just by the fact that Nausicaa was gorgeous. And then she would dominate them because she's wiser than they are, which is what Penelope would do um, because they're knuckleheads. Yeah. They want, they're seduced by beauty and, and the lust for power. Right. That's what they want. Did we answer your question? Yeah, no, that's helpful. It's an I, interesting scene. I don't know that it, it's an interesting question of, you know, what is it that like does Odysseus look at her and and see her as being seductive? It doesn't see there doesn't seem to be an indication that that's the thing that he recognizes about her. 
the, right. that he like no she she he knows that he's confident in her faithfulness at this point well I, yeah right i don't mean that like I, I don't mean that he is he doubts whether he doesn't question whether she is actually trying to seduce these other people so much as like you know well she doesn't know that he's there right yeah Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on how you look at it at this point. So she's, she knows he isn't, she doesn't think he's there. So she's not trying to like seduce him or something like that. But it's circumstance, it's her, it's her wisdom, it's her strategic participation that, that is so compelling to him in this moment. Yeah. He's not, he's not like, I don't know what the, Dazzled what's, the what's the family friendly way you can say something like, <laughs> well, right. Yeah. You I wonder if he's, you wonder if he's wise enough and has experienced it enough to know that, oh, clearly something's going on here. Like this is an unnatural state for someone her age, right? Um, because he's he's had his looks made better looking when it, when it suited the purposes by Athena and he's now had his looks made worse looking and older by Athena to suit purposes. You almost wonder if he has enough wisdom to know that like, this is great. She, and now her words are going to totally, you know, trick these guys um, because they're stupid. Um, and you don't know how much he's, I guess he never actually saw her before this. Um, I like that you're bringing up the stupid question because in some ways I've always wondered if one of the, if kind of the big flaw of this book, if there is one, I don't even know why I put it that way. One of the things that I think about with this book is are the suitors actually really a worthy enemy for these people? Cause they're kind of not the suitors, are, except that they have a lot of them. The suitors are 20 year old knuckleheads who think they can get something for nothing. and that he's not going to show back up. And so... Right. And, yeah. I mean, the, I know there's a lot of other, you know, antagonists in this book as well. Um, but I've, I've always, you know, if there was one Hector amongst <laughs> the suitors that, that could, uh, you know, give him a battle. Right. Pose a threat. Well, and, yeah. but, but they know, but you know for a... But they have no experience, right? Like, uh, there's something I like in the, in the Lattimore translation when it says it earlier. And then when Tele- Telemachus is recounting his, his travel to his mom, Menelaus says, calls them unwarlike. Like they think, and they're trying to get the bed of a man who's much greater than them. Like they, they all think they can fight, but they don't, they have no, um, they're not battle tested at all. Right. So they just all, all assume because they learned how to throw a spear and shoot an arrow in their dad's backyard that they can fight someone. Hmm. When in reality, they've never been battle tested because they never went off to war. Hmm. And so, when push comes to shove, they're not, they're not ready for it. Hmm. Well, we should, uh, we should wrap this up. We're over an hour now. So let's do some final thoughts. Uh, Brandon, I'll let you offer some final thoughts first. If you have any final, final thoughts ever. I don't, well, I mean, <laughs> as far as I know, you're going to get to keep thinking after I hit stop on the recording, but for the sake of this podcast, I just made any podcast in the future. This is my only chance to get final thoughts. Oh, well, um, we'll see. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll see how you did. Final thoughts. Um, we'll do a performance review. My final thoughts are that if this is your first time reading in the Stanley Wilson translation to poke around with some other ones, just for some, to, some of these things are done well by her and some of these things are done well, other better other places. But I, I love this build up in here. I love that it's slow. Um, and I think that the, the, in particular, the, the dealing with the other beggar and, and the seeing Telemachus emulate his father, is really, really important, bringing us back to the Telemachy from the, from the very beginning, as far as restoring, restoring the kingdom, because it's not just Odysseus coming back, but it's that when he's ultimately gone, 
there'll be somebody in his place who can, who can pick up the, pick up the mantle. So, mm. yeah, we didn't, I, that's something I marked to talk about, but you can only talk about so many things, I guess. Well, at least in a finite amount of time, in theory, we could just talk forever and cover everything until we are, um, you know, six feet under Heidi final thoughts. Um, I'm really interested in what you just said about the worthy opponents. Uh, I'd never thought of that before. And so I'm going to continue thinking after the recording button isn't beeping red at me anymore. You can but- <laughs> think in ways that don't involve speech. <laughs> I can. Yes. It's a skill that I try to develop in my life. Um, the, I'm wondering. You could just talk to yourself, I guess, now that I think about it. <laughs> I mean, I could, but. You, why would you would never do that? Right. Only just, crazy people do that. Only crazy people do that. Yeah. Only crazy people look in the mirror and have conversations back and forth. So or talk um, back to the podcast. Okay, but I did a little piece <laughs> of Heidi White trivia. I did growing up uh, listen to Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith on repeat, and because I wasn't is this allowed related, to or is this just like about no, you being crazy? This is just about me being a crazy person. Oh, okay, and I. I was going to beat the odds and become a singer, like a a really successful singer, to, of course, to the glory of God. And um, <laughs> so I used to sing Amy Grant songs, like put it on my tape player and sing in the mirror, like all the time, like over and over. I'd come home from school and I would sing and so I could figure out how I could charm all the people in Nashville to get me 15 years later, you became a therapist. 15, that's right. Exactly. Because all therapists go to school because they need therapy. That's like a rule. So, um, I, was, I was like eight at the time. Like this wasn't recent, but maybe I'll pick that up again to talk about my final thoughts. Yeah. So the, um, the, the question foe. of the, the worthy opponent is an interesting one because I think that that it almost makes it more compelling that they're not worthy of him, but there's just so many of them. Like if Antinous was the only one, it would be a giant failure of a story because all he had to do is just walk in and punch him and, you know, should I kill him with this one or should I keep him alive to keep punching him again? Like that's that, but because there's this army of unworthy small-souled men that that part of Odysseus's journey of suffering is that he can't just go in and defeat them all individually the way he knows he could, but that they're too much for him because there's a group of them. And so he has to carefully restrain himself and strategically plan, and he has to have the help of the gods. And, and, and there's something about that that is compelling again within the, within the Christian narrative um, and I think there's something about that that is reminiscent of our Lord, right? That when he came to earth, he, was, he had to submit himself unto death by zero people who could actually hurt him if he displayed his power. Hmm. But, and I think there's something in, the, in, in the, those of us who have been formed by the Christian narrative that recognizes that in Odysseus, even though that this is a pre-Christian story, that there's something in us that like thrills to that, that this is the king in disguise. And just as Jesus was, and that nobody is a match for him, but he had to restrain himself 
you know, unto death, empty himself unto death, as Philippians 2 tells us. So um, I think that, that that's my final thought. Well, to your point, I mean, the, the idea of a worthy foe or worthy opponent is kind of the age-old problem yeah, right. Any story because the by by definition, the idea of like a true hero means that there's just people that aren't going to match up to him. You know, <laughs> you watch superhero movies. It's why almost right. every superhero movie you're like, yeah, I don't really like the villain that much, but you know, <laughs> he had to rely on although, like. Although we did watch this totally off subject. We watched Die Hard with Vengeance the other night. <laughs> I'd never seen it before in my life, and the whole time I'm like, I like the bad guy better. Like the whole time, like, I just. <laughs> Didn't care about John McClane. It, it does draw a sharp <laughs> distinction between these, these, these two epic heroes, though, between Achilles and Odysseus, like what, mm-hmm. you're, what you're looking at. So mm. that's interesting. Right. Mm. You're right. That's true. Well, Brandon, thanks. You made your, your maiden voyage on, on groceries. <laughs> You've made it back to the dock. And uh, as your brother a, said, my, my day a butt. A worthy opponent, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. You're Hector. Yeah. Wait, who does that make We're you? not Antinous. Wait a <laughs> Well, it's always a competition. He's about to be dragged around the city. (laughs) Earlier today, I was told I was Patroclus because of my Enneagram. So I don't know. This is not going well for me. (laughs) That was a great discussion. Hector's not bad. Yeah. Hector's a good character, man. Just because he ends up being dragged around behind a chariot doesn't mean he's a bad character. He's a great character. In the end, we're all going to end up being dragged behind chariots. It's just the nature of life. One way or another, I am dying in stolen armor. (laughs) I was saying you're more like Hector than you are like Antinous and the suitors. Right, you're worthy of the place that you are filling in the story. Well, then I think mm. I think that comes in the narrative of the Close Reads podcast. Of the narrative story. of the Close Reads podcast story. That's well, right. speaking of which, speaking of the narrative of the Close Reads podcast, if you want to participate in that narrative, you can join the conversation over on Facebook, and you can, of course, send your questions to us, post them on the Facebook group, or send them by email. As I said earlier, uh, Close Reads Podcast at Gmail and we will be in just a few weeks. Now we will be answering uh, your listener questions, so be sure to send them in. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on all the social media places that I said earlier. You can support the show on Patreon. You can get our bonus episodes. Our most recent episode on there was a Willa Cather story called Paul's Case. So if you want to dive into some uh, discussion of Freudian psychology and early 20th century fiction, you know, have a good time with that. And we'll be back later this month with another bonus episode of a short story. But for this week, for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, who's not here, and for Brandon LeBlanc, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. We will talk to you next week. And in the meantime, happy reading. Mm-hmm.